Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, we still have three trading days left in the month of October, and the NASDAQ is on pace for its worst monthly decline since the 2008 financial crisis, yet everybody thinks that there's no problem. The NASDAQ is down, I think, over 10% so far this month. The Russell 2000 is actually down about 12.5%, as are the Dow transports. They're down about the same percentage. The Dow Jones is actually doing a lot better. It's not even down, I think, quite 7% so far for the month of October. But still, this is probably one of the worst Octobers on record, which of course was exactly what I was saying was going to happen during the month of October in my podcast. I felt particularly uh, worried about the markets, although maybe worried is not the proper word, but I was pretty sure that the probability of a big decline this October was much greater uh, than what I had seen in the past. When you looked at what was going on beneath the surface already with the home builders and the autos and the Fed, if you remember the title of my podcast at the very last rate hike, my title was, was that the rate hike that broke the camel's back? And I looked at the hike and what was being said at the time by Powell, and I didn't understand how the markets could possibly ignore what was going to be happening with interest rates and the trade war and what had already happened to the overseas markets that had already gone down. It didn't make sense that the U.S. market can continue to defy uh, gravity in the face of overwhelming negative evidence uh, that was taking place. And it seemed to me that if the market was going to break, October uh, was a pretty good time for that to happen, uh, given the history that we've had with October. But also, I thought, hey, the election is coming up in November, and it seems to me that a market decline right uh, before the November election would be particularly problematic. And as luck would have it, or bad luck, uh, depending on your perspective, that is exactly what happened. And in particular, look at what's happening with these FANG stocks. You know, the market is now being led lower by those stocks. Uh, All uh, three out of four of the FANG stocks are now in bear markets. In fact, Facebook and Netflix are down better than 30% apiece. Amazon just went into a bear market yesterday. It's now down a little bit more than 20%. The only one that's not in bear market territory officially yet is um, Google. And I think it's down about 18%. Alphabet is the, the name of that company. I forget when they changed the name to, to Alphabet or if it's always been Alphabet, but uh, that's the only one. Clearly, it's in correction territory, but the market does not look good. I mean, the Dow was down another 296 points on Friday. 
Sure, it was down more than 500 points at one point during the day, and all the bulls probably want to hang their hat on the fact that we didn't close on the lows, so it's a positive sign, right? We we were down 500, but we rallied back to only down 296. The Nasdaq closed down 151 points, just over 2%. At its worst levels of the day, though, it was down over 200. If you want to think that that means that we've seen a bottom, But as far as I'm concerned, there's very little indication, in fact, no indication whatsoever of a bottom. Look at the chart on the VIX. I mean, to me, the VIX looks like it's just breaking out. That is the volatility index. We haven't even taken out the peak uh, from earlier in the year. And I think if the market was going to bottom, we should at least make a new high in the VIX and show that there is more concern, but there is not. In fact, again, looking at the complacency Gold was up a bit yesterday, but not that much. We closed at about $1,233 an ounce. So the price of gold still creeping higher. But if there was more fear out there, if people were worried about the market, they would be buying gold. And they certainly would be buying gold stocks, which were up today, but not nearly as much as they were down yesterday. So to me, the lack of buying in gold and gold stocks is indicative of a lack of fear, lack of concern. And in fact, I watch the financial coverage. I watch on Fox Business. I watch on CNBC. I watch on Bloomberg. And overwhelmingly, people are saying there's nothing to worry about, which is exactly what they were saying before the 2008 financial crisis. You know, people like to call me a perma bear right? because I'm always bearish. And I'm not actually always bearish on the stock market. In fact, there have been times over the last, uh, I don't know, 10, 20 years, certainly, where I've been bullish. I mean, I was bullish because I thought that monetary policy would drive the U.S. stock market higher. And I've encouraged people not to short the market, you know, because I thought that the dollar would ultimately fall more than stocks. But there have been times where I have been particularly negative on the U.S. stock market. That was certainly the case uh, at the peak in 1999-2000. Back then, I was very bearish on the market, the NASDAQ in particular. I was very bearish again in 2007-2008. I was not bearish on the market in 2003 and 4 and 5 and 6. In contrast, I was bullish. I thought the market was going to go up. I just thought that foreign stocks would go up more And in that case, I was right. Foreign stocks did go up more than domestic stocks during that period of time. And I was also bullish on U.S. stocks in 2009, 2010, 11. I just thought that foreign stocks would go up more. And for for the first few years, I was correct. 2009, 10, 11, foreign stocks, gold stocks did a lot better than the U.S. stock market. That changed, though, in around 2013. And so from then, I was wrong. Right? I, I would have been better off being in U.S. stocks uh, than being in the foreign stocks and being in the gold stocks. But I was not negative on the U.S. stock market. I thought that Fed monetary policy would drive the market up. But there have been times where I have thought the market was going to go down. One of those times was earlier this year when the market really started to fall, uh, January, February of this year. I thought that that was the beginning of the bear market. To me, it looked like the bear market was starting. And actually, I still think I was right. I think the bear market did start then for the overall market, but it was being masked by these FANG stocks, right? There is a certain uh, segment of the stock market 
that made new highs and that brought the the averages to new highs. And so it kind of concealed the stealth bear market that was taking place beneath the surface. And it became more obvious to me, you know, last month that the rest of the market was going to join, right? That the generals were going to join the troops in this bear market. And that is exactly what's happened. And I am, again, bearish on the U.S. stock market. Now, I am not a super bear because I still believe that the Federal Reserve is going to reverse course and do something to put a floor beneath the market. Now, if they don't, then there's no floor and the market's going to keep on falling. But I recognize that at any moment, the Federal Reserve can do something. They can throw a lifeline to the market in the form of an about face on monetary policy. But the perimeter bulls, right, are always bullish, right? They always think the market's going up. I don't always think the market is going down. Sometimes I think it's going up and sometimes I think it's going down. But because I have recognized the underlying problems in the U.S. economy that the bears are ignoring, I know that ultimately a dollar crisis is coming and therefore I want to invest internationally when it comes to the stock market. So even if I am bullish on U.S. stocks, with the concerns that I have about the economy and the dollar, I want to invest abroad. But the perma bulls, right, who permeate the financial media, right, who are on all the time, they are always bullish on U.S. stocks. They never believe the market is going to go down. And then what happens is whenever there is a bear market, right, because all bear markets, when they begin, you don't know it's a bear market because Wall Street has decided to define a bear market as a 20% decline. And so until stocks are down 20%, it's not a bear market. And if it's not a bear market, you're not supposed to sell. You're supposed to buy, right? You're supposed to buy the dip. It's a buying opportunity. So whenever a bear market begins, all the perma bulls say, it's a, it's a correction, buy. Then once the market is down 20% and we're in a bear market, then they say, well, you know, it's too late to sell now. We've already had the bear market. Now it's time to buy more because we're about to have another bull market. So in other words, you never sell. You just hold forever and hope. And that strategy has worked during the last two bear markets because the Federal Reserve was able to bail out the perma bulls uh, with its monetary magic. Well, it's not going to work again. The third time is not the charm. As I've been saying, it's going to be three strikes and everybody's going to be out if they think they're going to get bailed out by the Fed. Because when the Federal Reserve has to try to revive the markets and the economy by going to a third round of or fourth round of QE, when they have to take interest rates back down to zero and do quantitative easing again, the dollar is going to implode. We're going to have the real crash. That was the subject of my most recent book. One stock that I want to talk about in particular that is another dead canary that everybody seems to be ignoring is a company called Mohawk Industries. And if you don't know who Mohawk is, it's a U.S. manufacturer of flooring products, and their products are used in the housing. They make floors for offices, for residential, and so they have business because of home building. If they're building new homes, the homes need floors. Or if somebody buys a home and they remodel, well, they might redo their floors. So their fortunes are tied to the housing market. And remember, I've been talking about the fact that as the housing bubble pops and the whole home building industry collapses, that a lot of ancillary businesses are also going to be affected. And obviously, the suppliers, Mohawk Industries, 
is suffering. They warned on their profits. The stock was down 24% yesterday to a multi-year low. The last time the stock was this low, I believe, was in 2013. The stock is down 60% from where it was earlier in the year. And this is happening or going to be happening across the board. And it's not just the, the businesses that rely on housing but the businesses that rely on autos. And in fact, all of retailing is going to be affected by rising interest rates, rising prices, tariffs, and now the reverse wealth effect, right? Stock market equity is being wiped out. People's 401ks are going to become their 201ks again. And the reverse wealth effect is going to be uh, in full gear. But again, nowhere will it be more uh, pronounced than in the housing market, because a lot of Americans, again, as I said before, their house is their only asset. And it takes people a long time to realize how much value their house has lost. It's not like the stock market. I mean, you look at your stock portfolio, you can see every day. It's mark to market. You can look at your statement. And so people that own a stock portfolio know every day whether their stock market wealth has gone up or down. And if people see their accounts going up, well, they can feel wealthier. They can save less, spend more. Uh, but if they see their portfolio going down, they know that maybe they need to save more. They don't have as much wealth. Well, with your house, you don't necessarily know what your house is worth day to day because there is no market. Right? So what you rely on is comparable sales that have taken place. And it takes a long time for those comps to go down because a lot of times people's houses are for sale, but they don't trade. It takes longer and longer. And if you look at what's going on, inventories are building. It's taking longer and longer for homes to be sold. People who have their homes on the market, they're reducing the price, but the houses are still not selling. So they still don't have the comparable sales at the lower level. But eventually, a lot of these homes that are on the market are going to sell, or some of them, and they're going to sell for significantly lower prices than the, the last sales. And then the reduction in property values is going to sink in. People are going to realize that their house has lost a lot of value. So let's say you were a homeowner and you had a house that was worth $500,000 uh, and you had a $400,000 mortgage. Well, that's a $100,000 asset that you have. Well, let's say all of a sudden you find out based on some other sales in the neighborhood that have now taken place that your $500,000 house is only worth $400,000. Right? Well, that's a 20% decline in the value of your house, but it's a 100% decline in the value of your equity. You've lost all of your equity based on that 20% decline in the value of your house. Now, people are going to behave differently when they've just lost $100,000, especially if that was the only hundred grand that they had. And of course, if you have a house that's worth $400,000 and the mortgage is $400,000, if you sell the house, you're going to have to write a check to the bank. Because the, the sales uh, agent, the broker, is going to charge a 5% commission. Well, I mean, the 5% commission is going to mean you're going to have to write a check because you're, you're, if you just sell for the value of your mortgage. So this is going to have a big psychological effect on consumers, and it's going to have a real impact on consumers. And again, if you look at what's happening in the economy, look at the GDP numbers that came out on Friday for the third quarter. And of course, the biggest boost to that 3.5% increase, that's the preliminary estimate for Q3 uh, GDP. What is driving that is consumption. 
But how much longer can that consumption go on when wealth is evaporating, when interest rates and prices are going down? In fact, the, one of the big drags on the market Friday was Amazon. And one of the reasons that Amazon was down so much is because they warned. They said their future revenues are not going to be what analysts believe. Their, their holiday sales, they are guiding down. Now, remember, Amazon is where everybody shops. I mean, pretty much every American, if you're an American, you buy stuff on Amazon. Right? I mean, we buy stuff on Amazon all the time at my house. I mean, every day there's another Amazon package showing up. So if Amazon is basically saying that, hey, we're not going to do as much sales as we thought, that's a pretty good sign that Americans are slowing down their spending, right? They're, they're, maybe they're maxed out. They just can't borrow any more money to buy stuff that they really can't afford on credit. So if Amazon is warning, everybody is going to be warning. Sales are going down. Consumer spending is going down. And in fact, that Mohawk Industries, one of the reasons that Mohawk Industries is losing so much money or ha the, the losses are there, it's not just because of a slowdown in demand from housing, from new construction and remodeling, but the tariffs are killing them because the materials that they need to produce the flooring are imported and are subject to these tariffs. And of course, the tariffs are going to kick in even more, right? The tariffs are going to get higher in January of next year. But also, let me get back and talk about this GDP number that came out. 3.5% did slightly beat the consensus of 3.3. But remember, for a while, the Atlanta Fed was looking for a print in the fours. Uh, but the New York Fed was at 2.2, so much higher than what the New York Fed was looking for. But if you look at the internals, the biggest reason that we got 3.5 was because of the price index, the deflator. So last quarter, when we had 4.2, the government said that prices rose at an annualized rate of 3%. But in Q3, they said that prices only increased at an annualized rate of 1.7%. Now, I just call BS on that number. I don't think we had that significant a slowdown in the annualized rate of inflation between the second quarter of the year and the third quarter of the year. If the 3% inflation rate had held steady, then Q2 GDP would have been just 2.2%. So obviously not nearly as good a headline as 3.5%. We'll see if they revise this thing down after the election. Obviously, the Republicans can still campaign on 3.5, even if it turns out that 3.5 uh, was uh, you know, an overestimate based on new data. And I think new data is going to come out, particularly on trade. And trade already. Right? Donald Trump is out there again bragging about uh, how we're winning the trade war. And I talked about that. That was the topic of my last podcast because we just printed the worst merchandise trade deficit on a monthly basis in U.S. history. Well, the trade deficit was so large in the third quarter that it subtracted 1.78 percentage points from the GDP number. That is the largest subtraction from GDP that we've had from trade in a quarter in 33 years. Because what happens when you calculate GDP, right? You take government spending, you take consumer spending and business spending, and then you add in your trade surplus or you subtract out your trade deficit. Now, since we never have a trade surplus, 
trade is always a net subtraction from GDP. But this quarter, the trade deficit was so bad that we subtracted more from our GDP than we've ever done in the thir- in 33 years. Now, I think that it's actually going to be bigger because I think we're going to end up getting bigger numbers for the trade deficit for the quarter, which are ultimately going to have an even larger drag. But if Donald Trump campaigned about what a disaster these trade deficits are and how the trade deficits are examples of America losing and how after we elect Trump, we'll be winning, right? And now Trump is claiming that we're winning on trade. Trump says that we had these deficits in the past because of incompetent presidents who didn't know what they were doing, right? He doesn't blame China. He blames America because we had stupid deals. We had stupid, incompetent leaders. And now he's in charge, right? And so now we're winning Whereas under the idiot presidents that preceded him, we were losing. But wait a minute. We just had the worst quarter for trade in 33 years. So if we were losing before Trump, well, we're really losing now. I mean, how many presidents have we had over the last 33 years? Because none of them has presided over a quarter where we had a bigger subtraction from GDP from trade. So if Trump's predecessors were incompetent when it comes to trade and negotiating, well, he's even more incompetent because we have bigger deficits under Trump than we've ever had. But Trump wants to ignore the growing deficits and claim that we're winning the trade war. But so does everybody else. I mean, Wall Street is oblivious, all the pundits. Nobody wants to acknowledge these underlying problems. I mean, because when you have a Republican president, everybody who's a Republican has to pretend that the economy is great. They can't acknowledge that it's a problem, but that's what makes it so much worse. The recession that everybody refuses to recognize is around the corner, is going to be so much worse than the Great Recession. And that Great Recession and the Republican denial as the bubble was being inflated is the reason that Barack Obama became president. The next Democratic president, who is going to be much further to the left than Barack Obama, the reason that he's going to get elected is precisely because Republicans are cheerleading this bubble. And they are just marching us right over the edge of a cliff, telling us everything is going to be great. And then when we end up falling off of a cliff, who's going to save us? They have no credibility left. And now the Democrats can come in, the socialists can come in and say, we told you so. Look at all the damage the Republicans did with this nonsense about capitalism and trickle down and tax cuts and deregulation. That's why we had a collapse. And the only thing that's going to fix us is socialism. Because the bigger the collapse that can be blamed on Republicans and capitalism, the more government is therefore required you know, to solve the problems. So last time we got Obama, but this time, because the problems are going to be so much bigger, the economy is going to be in so much worse shape, then we're going to have to go all in. We're going to have to have the total socialist president. And again, Republicans are going to have themselves to blame because of the attitude that they had leading up to the crash. And I'm really tired of listening to everybody talk about how a recession is nowhere in sight because the economy is so good, right? They're saying, oh, look, we just had a 3.5% GDP number, so obviously we're nowhere near recession if the GDP number was so high. First of all, we don't know what the real GDP number is going to be for the third quarter. They're going to revise it two or three times. 
And of course, if we are, you know, in a recession already, which could happen, you don't know that for a long time. But remember the Great Recession of 2008-2009. That started in the fourth quarter of 2007. But the entire quarter of the fourth quarter of 2007, the GDP for that quarter grew by 2.5%. So even in the quarter that the Great Recession began, that quarter still had a positive GDP of 2.5%. But by the first quarter of 2008, the GDP was minus 2.3%. So we went from plus 2.5 to minus 2.3 in one quarter. So who's to say we can't do that now? Plus the 3.5 number that we've got now. I am very confident that that number is going to be revised down after the election. Now, whether or not there's some kind of conspiracy to come up with a larger print, whether they fudge some numbers just to give the Republicans uh, a better number to run on, I have no idea. And I'm not suggesting that it was done on purpose, although I'm sure there are people who might think that way. But I just think that based on the direction of the trade numbers, the direction of the revisions more recently, that we're more likely to see downward revisions than upward revisions. And so when they get the final numbers, I think that the third quarter number is going to be lower uh, than 3.5. But there's nothing that says the fourth quarter can't be a negative number. right? You can go into a recession very quickly. That's how we went into recession in 2008. And, you know, if the stock market is hasn't been this weak since 2008... Why isn't it possible that if we have the type of stock market we had in 2008, that we're also not going to have the type of economy that we had in 2008? Stock market was crashing in 08 and we had a recession. Well, it's crashing now. Why shouldn't we have a recession? I mean, at least more people should be thinking that there might be a recession. Now, another thing that people keep pointing to is, oh, we can't have a recession. Look how low the unemployment rate is, right? Oh, you know. But recessions always start when the unemployment rate is low. They end when the unemployment rate is high. Recessions are a lagging indicator. In December of 2007, the beginning of the Great Recession, right? The greatest recession since the Great Depression, the unemployment rate was 4.8%. Now, I know that's higher than it is now, but at that time, it was considered very, very low unemployment, Right. The numbers we're having now are really kind of, you know, we haven't had them in 50 or 60 years. So, you know, below 5 percent back in 2007 was considered good. Right. People were bragging about the fact that we had such low unemployment when it was 4.8 percent in uh, December of 2007. Two years later, two years later, December of 2009, the unemployment rate was 9.93 percent. Right? The unemployment rate basically doubled in two years. And so if we are on the verge of another recession right now, it would make sense that it would be starting when the unemployment rate is low, because that's how they always start. Right? You know, people layoffs don't cause the recession, right? Businesses don't start laying people off, and then that's why we have a recession. The layoffs come after the recession starts. Because before we get recession, the employers are optimistic. Businesses are optimistic. They're over-investing or they're mal-investing and they're, they're over-building, right? But once the recession catches them by surprise, then they have to lay people off, right? Then they have to cut back. So the layoffs happen after the recession starts, not before. 
And of course, one of the reasons that employers are so optimistic about the economy is because of the stock market. In fact, Donald Trump hammers home that point every time he talks. He always talks about the wealth that has been created since he was elected. Well, what wealth is he talking about? It's the stock market. It's paper wealth, right? Well, that paper wealth is evaporating. And if the confidence evaporates along with it, if the confidence in the economy was a function of the rise in the stock market, well, the, the fall of the stock market destroys that confidence. And now as the reverse wealth effect kicks in, in addition to higher inflation, higher tariffs, higher interest rates, people are going to start to be pessimistic about the future, right? Consumers are going to spend less. And then the last thing that's going to happen as sales go down and costs go up, businesses now have to cut back, right? Your revenues are down. Your costs are going up. What do you do? Lay people off. That's like the last thing you do. In fact, during the tail end of the boom, when everybody is optimistic, nobody wants to let go of workers. They think they're going to need them, right? They've invested money in training and they want to retain. And even when you start to see a little bit of a downturn, you don't immediately lay people off because you think, well, this is temporary. I don't want to get rid of people. Then what if I need them? How do I get them back or retrain them? So employers will tend to hold on to their workers for too long, hoping that things uh, turn around, hoping that the decline that they're experiencing is temporary. But at some point, uh, they really have to lay people off. And I think this round of layoffs is going to be particularly large given the number of minimum wage hikes that have taken place during this a boom. You know, we've had a lot of states that have jacked up their minimum wage. And so I think more and more employers are going to be under a lot of pressure to lay off more expensive workers when they have to reduce their costs so that they can stay solvent. I am going to be on Fox Business on Monday, three o'clock, countdown to the closing bell with Liz Clayman and Liz, uh, has been one of the only uh, hosts on, I guess, conventional uh, financial television that has been inviting me to appear on the show. So uh, kudos to Liz Clayman for letting Peter Schiff come on and tell the truth. So make sure and tune in. Watch it live because it could be a very uh, interesting time for me to be on because Monday is the last Monday in October. And if we're going to have a Black Monday, it's going to have to be this Monday. Now, I recognize that crashes uh, are, you know, very rare things and they don't happen very often. But I would suggest or say that if we're going to have a Black Monday in an October, that this Monday is probably the highest probability uh, that that's going to happen in a long time. In fact, it's probably the highest probability since 2008. Now, I still think the odds are that we don't crash on Monday, right? Because again, crashes are very rare. But to the extent that we're going to get a crash, uh, I think that this Monday has probably has a higher probability of a market crash than probably any day that we've had in many, many years in the past. But even if the market doesn't crash, as I've said earlier in this podcast, the damage is already done. It has already been a horrific month of October. But the damage that has not been done yet is to investor uh, optimism, to investor confidence. People are not worried. They need to be worried. They should be worried. In fact, for us to have a short-term bottom, we have to have some concern. And in fact, the concern has to reach the Federal Reserve. And I do believe that if the market really does start to tank, if we really start to see some signs that 
investors are throwing in the towel. If we get into a bear market, which we could easily do by next week, again, you know, more and more stocks are in bear markets. We still have quite a ways to go before the major averages are in bear markets. I mean, even the Nasdaq, again, is only down about 12% from its peak. So even though uh, a good portion of the stocks, I don't know if it's got to 50% yet. I never, last I checked, better than 40% of the S&P was already in a bear market. But once the major averages are in bear markets and people are getting afraid, then the Federal Reserve may in fact act. And it's not going to be until the Fed capitulates that I think the market starts falling. And Fed capitulation is going to be where the Fed telegraphs that they're not raising rates anymore, that maybe they're, they've paused on their rate hiking. I don't know if it's going to be an emergency cut, but they're at least going to have to telegraph to the market that given some of the uncertainty or given maybe they're going to try to claim that inflation has, has pulled back and so inflation is not as high as they thought, and that would dress it up a bit if they can claim that the reason they're going to back away from the rate hikes is because inflation is lower than they thought it was going to be. I mean, that would be better, I guess, cover than admitting that they were worried about the economy. But whatever excuse the Fed comes up with, until the Fed capitulates, we're probably not going to see even a short-term bottom in the market. But I think if investors capitulate, then the Fed might capitulate next. But the, the important thing is, I don't think that the Fed just acknowledging that the rate hikes have come to a pause, we may get a short-term bounce, but I don't think it will last because I think the dollar will get crushed. I think gold will take off and I think money will flee the U.S. markets and will go for international markets. Again, if you look beneath the surface of what was going on this week, a lot of foreign stocks were taking off. There were some big gainers, not my gold stocks, but I had a lot of stocks that were up 20, 30% this week that weren't gold stocks, right? Not all my stocks, uh, but quite a few stocks that had been weak, uh, that had been going down, that we bought as value stocks. There were significant gains in this down week. So money is already starting to, to flow out of some of the momentum names into beaten down defensive value type stocks. And I think that will continue even if the Fed throws in the towel. And then more people are going to question, what is the Fed really worried about? The U.S. economy is slowing down. And if you've got these momentum stocks that are based on economic growth and earnings growth, well, the multiples are going to compress. People are going to get out of these stocks. And as the dollar starts to fall, then all of a sudden the inflation rate is going to pick up and that is going to put more downward pressure on bonds. And of course, the Fed is still out there with its quantitative tightening. So it needs to take that off the market. It needs to say that we're not going to be shrinking the balance sheet. But then, of course, these budget deficits are going to continue to explode because even the Fed pausing on rate hikes is not going to undo the damage that has already been done by the rate hikes that have already taken place. The recession is going to start. It doesn't matter if the Fed pauses. The recession is going to happen anyway. And of course, uh, the confidence that, that, that was there is going to go. We're going to see what happens as a result of these midterms. You know, I'm still listening on television and you still have all these Republicans, particularly on you know, Fox News, uh, saying that the reason the market is going down is because people are afraid that the Democrats are going to get the House. Look, people have known the Democrats were going to get the House the entire time the market was rising. I mean, that was a foregone conclusion. In fact, 
the Republicans have a better chance of keeping the House now than people thought a few months ago when the stock market was going up. So the fact that the Democrats might take the House is not the reason that the market is falling. In fact, if anything, the Democrats taking the House helps the Republicans in that they can at least try to blame the congressional Democrats for the next recession. I mean, that's what the next election is going to be all about. It's not going to be about who gets credit for the boom. It's going to be about who takes the blame for the bust. So we already know that Trump is going to blame the Fed. But blaming the Fed may not be enough. Trump needs to be able to blame the Democrats. And the best way to blame the Democrats is if the Democrats at least have Congress, at least one House, if not both Houses. Because if the Republicans control the House and the Senate and the presidency and we're in a recession, well, how do they blame the Democrats? I mean, they can only blame the Fed, but they can't blame the Democrats. But if at least the Democrats have some power, then it makes more sense where at least you've got some kind of script where you can say, oh, you see, it's because they screwed up uh, our agenda uh, by blocking the things that we wanted to do. So maybe the Democrats winning uh, the House or the Senate could be the best thing that happens to the, ch the Republican chances in 2020, but I still don't buy it. My experience is when the ship goes down, they blame the captain. And the captain of the ship is the president. And unfortunately, he is captain of the Titanic. And we're about to hit an iceberg, and everybody on this ship is going down. The ship is going to sink, and it's not going to be the cabin boys or even the, you know, the other officers that are going to get blamed. It's going to be uh, the captain of the ship who is telling us all is clear. It's going to be smooth sailing. Everything is great. The ship is unsinkable. And then when it goes down, it's going to be a mutiny. It's going to be the captain that takes the blame. And unfortunately, we're going to have an all-democratic crew in 2020, and they're all going to be socialists. Remember, it was Richard Nixon who said, we're all Keynesians now. Well, after this collapse, after this bear market, after this recessionary, inflationary recession, it's not just going to be that we're all Keynesians now. It's going to be we're all socialists now. Thank you.